This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessel, the host of Change Agents. My guests today are Stephanie Fox and Grant Rosen. Stephanie is the Executive Director of Jewish Voice for Peace, or JVP for short. JVP advocates for the rights of Palestinians in, West, in the West Bank. Brandt is uh, the rabbi at a synagogue in Chicago. He also advocates for the rights of Palestinians. Brandt is a member of JVP. We will just be discussing their concerns about the policies and practices of the state of Israel relating to Palestine and also the policies of the U.S. government. For full disclosure, I have been a member of Jewish Voice for Peace for several years. Stephanie, could, could you give a brief overview of the work that Jewish Voice for the Peace does? Absolutely. It's so great to be here with you both. Um, Jewish Voice for Peace has been around, this is our 25th year, uh, uh, which both feels like it happened very quickly and that it's been quite a long struggle. Um, but the work that we do is really about building a movement, an intergenerational, interracial, um, you know, powerful grassroots movement across this country of Jews and allies who are committed to fighting for a vision of justice, freedom, equality, and dignity for all people of Palestine, Israel. Um, and in fact, all people everywhere. We do that work deeply intersectionally with movements for racial and economic justice um, here in the US and also around the world. Um, and we're also really fighting for uh, what we talk about as a Judaism beyond Zionism, a kind of transformation of our community um, as a part of that work. Thank you. That, that, that was a lot of information in about 40, <laughs> 40 seconds at the most. Um, Brant, you've um, founded a um, congregation in Chicago, um, con Congregation Sedek Chicago. Um, uh, I've, I'm interested in why you did it, but first, um, am I right that the translation from um, Hebrew would be Justice Chicago? That's right. Sedek is the Hebrew word for justice. And uh, so you were um, at uh, one and I think uh, actually several um, uh, synagogues over the, your career. Um, uh, what caused you to decide to create a uh, a synagogue from scratch. Well, also, uh, like Stephanie, I'm very, very happy and grateful to be here and appreciate the invitation to have this conversation. Uh, so, yes, I'm a, a Reconstructionist rabbi. I was uh, ordained, trained and ordained at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia. And I served a congregation in Denver for five years. And then uh, the congregation I served the longest was uh, in Evanston, Illinois, uh, which is a suburb of Chicago, uh, Jewish Reconstructionist congregation for 16 years. And, and can you give a very brief uh, definition of sort of where Reconstructionist is as compared to, to um, Orthodox or... Or others. 
Sure. So, right. Uh, Reconstructionism is an American Jewish denomination, like the Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox movements. Uh, we're certainly the smallest and the youngest. Uh, we're also uh, the only denomination that was uh, was whose genesis was in the United States. We're a uniquely American movement, and it, the the movement is largely uh, founded on the ideas of Mordechai Kaplan, who was a very prominent and important American. Uh, uh, leader and thinker and theologian uh, for uh, most of the modern era uh, and into the contemporary era. He lived to the ripe old age of 100, uh, died in 1983. And um, I would say we're on the progressive end of the spectrum, uh, both religiously in terms of uh, the way we understand the importance of Judaism evolving into uh, the current moment as Judaism has always evolved uh, throughout history. Uh, also politically, uh, we tend to be on the the leftist edge of the spectrum in terms of the the stands that reconstructionists take. Uh, that's a very very thumbnail sketch. Well, yeah, similar to Stephanie's uh, description, uh, it had a lot in it. So thank you. Um, so why? God, so to you... answer yes, your original question. So. Uh, during the course of my tenure in my uh, former congregation in Evanston, uh, social justice activism and organizing was always a very important part of my rabbinate and the congregations that I served. And uh, the issue of Israel-Palestine has always been a very important issue for me personally, and um, both in my own personal activism and, and the congregations, like many congregations, Israel looms large in their identity and the work that they do. And during the course of my tenure at JRC, I would say my own approach to the issue really evolved. Uh, and I would say it evolved from being what I would have referred to as a liberal Zionist or a progressive Zionist um, to um, breaking with Zionism and really understanding my, both my political uh, approach but also my, my religious and spiritual identity as... Um, as a Palestine solidarity activist. I, I, I realized that it was impossible to square the circle of uh, Israel being both a, a Jewish and a democratic state, as liberal Zionists like to say. And so I, I broke with Zionism. Uh, this was uh, a long time coming, and this was in 2008. And to my congregation's credit, we were able to make that work. Um, they... You know, it was it was difficult. I was not the rabbi they hired um, at that point, but we worked hard to widen the tent of what was uh, acceptable discourse on this issue. And there were members of my congregation who were not Zionists, who, um, you know, um, I think in many ways felt vindicated that their rabbi was coming around to their point of view. But in um, 2014, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, God. Would it be fair to say that there were uh, people who were somewhat disturbed about this? It was. It would be fair to say that, yes. Um, it was not easy. It was painful for many members of my yeah. congregation. But the leadership of my congregation, to their credit, always stood by me and my right to speak my conscience, even when individual board members didn't necessarily agree with me. And we worked hard to make that work. It's a long story. But the bottom line is, in 2014, uh, it uh, my own activism and public visibility on this issue, largely through Jewish Voice for Peace, actually. I was um, 
became increasingly involved in Jewish Voice for Peace. I, I helped to found the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council and um, just became more um, unabashed about my views on this issue. And in 2014, uh, which was in the fall of 2014, which you may remember was a time of a horrible Israeli military, military onslaught on Gaza, um, it just became too painful for my congregation. And so I, I resigned from the congregation. I didn't, at the time, have any intention to start a new congregation. Uh, I didn't think um, I was employable as a congregational rabbi at that point. And I actually worked um, as a full-time activist. I worked for the American Friends Service Committee, the Quaker Social Justice Organization. And it was during that time that um, some colleagues, comrades of mine, former members of my former congregation, we would get together to do Jewish together informally. And that ended up being the kernel of what ended up becoming formally this new congregation. Um, well, thank you. Um, uh, Stephanie, can, um, can you're, you're clearly um, an advocate in an organization that does a lot of advocacy. Um, uh, when did you first become an advocate? Can you remember? Um, not, not on issues necessarily relating to uh, Palestine or Judaism. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think I, my sense of self has always been, since I can recall, very wrapped up in sort of ideas of wanting to achieve, you know, fairness, even at a very young age, like really wanting to kind of connect to that sense of justice. Um, and I remember um, kind of where I think I became an, an advocate or an activist or an organizer um, was in high school. I grew up in a, a very white evangelical suburban town um, in the Pacific Northwest. And um, the pub at the public high school, I was a part of trying to, to create a sort of comprehensive sexual health education, peer education program. I, friends and I and one of our wonderful teachers were trying to put this program together. Um, and in our town, it was, um, there was some very, it really cut against the grain of the status quo that wanted to be maintained in that town, right? And so we faced a lot of very vehement opposition from uh, parents and other adults in town. They would sneak in and try to videotape us saying, you know, anal sex, which would then, of course, mean that we were saying something wrong, you know, and then they would bring it to the school board. And it was very, it was very intense. And I understood, look, 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 this is this group of adults who have all the power over our lives. And all we're trying to do is give each other information about how to stay healthy and okay as teens. And this is such a threat to the order they're trying to maintain, you know, and that, that sort of sense of opposition from them kind of radicalized me and had me see like, oh, the power is not serving us here as young people or started to understand the way racial dynamics worked in my town. And so it kind of grew from there. But I, I credit those right-wing parents um, often. <laughs> and, <laughs> really and, me about power. Um, and um, yeah, I'm sure they'd be happy to hear about <laughs> I'm sure, that. I'm sure they, they're happy about their legacy in my, yes. my, <laughs> my work. Um, was you being Jewish part of what led you to advocacy even 
at at that young age? I think so. Um, maybe you know, I, I I believe it did, and it was connected for me. I I grew up in um, my dad's side of the family is not Jewish, and my mom was the first person in kind of her family to marry a non-Jew, and I think it meant a little bit of alienation for me and my sister from the Jewish life of our family. Um, and then growing up in a town where it was like us and the Rosenthal's, there weren't a lot of other Jews present. Um, and um, we stopped going to synagogue when I was like seven or so. So I didn't have a lot of connection to Jewish community, but I had a very deep sense of Jewish identity and a very deep longing to connect more fully to, to Jewish community. And the the thing that I, you know, I was you know, kind of huddled in my, in my room reading Hannah Arendt and really like, you know, trying to, trying to gather in a um, sense of that connection. And for me, the, the deep threadedness of our tradition and a quest for justice felt very compelling to me and felt like, yeah, this is me. These are my people. Thank you. And um, uh, Hannah Arendt uh, is, was a remarkable um, scholar on a lot of issues um, and was Jewish as well. Thanks, um, Brant, um, when did you s- start advocating? Yeah, that's a, it is a good question. Um, and I, th- I think the seed for that was, was planted in me very, very early on as well. Uh, and um, I think it, it largely was a result of just the family I, I was a part of. You know, my uh, my mother passed away a little less than a year ago, and when I was just thinking about her legacy, I mean, I realize now that my parents very much passed on this this legacy of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be human is to um, see the world as a place that needs changing. And my mom in particular was someone, and I just only really really truly realized this recently she was someone who um when there were issues of in- injustice in the world and she had her issues that she was involved in um it really she took it personally like she would get very emotionally upset about um any number of issues uh that were uh, close to her heart and i definitely realize now i that i inherited that from her you know i think for a lot of us it's it, these issues choose us. We don't choose them, and it's almost involuntary. Like you know, we need to do something, otherwise we're going to go crazy. You yeah. know, we can't not act in the world, and so that that's something I guess I always knew, but I, I've only really consciously understood it um, when I was you know thinking about my mom and thinking about what I'd say at her memorial service. Um, and you know, as I said, I think being Jewish was always connected to that. My parents. Um, we grew up in a reform temple in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. And I would say my parents were among the more active, uh, you know, members of the congregation. You know, we had to be home every Friday night for Shabbat dinner. And um, that, that the Jewish identity was a very important part of our home life. And, you know, they, it was very clear, to, they made it very clear to me, uh, my mom in particular, that that's what it meant to be Jewish. You know, that yeah. was... I think uh, maybe even a primary part of being Jewish was, you know, acting, acting in the world. Um, uh, it, yeah. It's, it's interesting because uh, I, I grew up in a, um, a secular Jewish household, but uh, 
I don't think I would have had the work that I've done for the past 30 years and perhaps more if I can go back to, to high school and uh, were it not for being Jewish and uh, much of that coming from my father. Uh, so uh, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the issues um, that that the two of you really care about involving uh, Palestine and Israel. Uh, but first I want to go back with a little history. Before that, I want to remind people that have just come in that you are listening to Change Agents. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Stephanie Fox, the Executive Director of Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, um, otherwise known as JVP. Uh, JVP advocates for the rights of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere. My guests today um, uh, um, uh, Stephanie is the executive director of, uh, as I've said before, of the um, Jewish Voice for Peace Brant's a rabbi in Chicago. Uh, we are discussing uh, their concerns about the policies and practice of the state of Israel relating to Palestine and also policies of the U.S. government. So perhaps, um, Brant, you could give a, um, a history that would um, perhaps start, um, uh, well, that would end with the creation of the state of Israel. And, and while doing that, to um, try to uh, talk about what it means to be a Zionist. Sure. Uh, well, Zionism, as we, uh, as we understand it today, is a, a political movement. Uh, it is a European political movement that was born in the, the uh, late 19th century. Uh, and it was very much a movement of Jewish modernity. That was a time in, you know, post-Enlightenment Europe in which Jews were trying to, were coming out of the ghetto, they were trying to understand what it meant to be Jewish in the modern age, and there were many different responses, and Zionism was one of them. And Zionism was a movement that was very much influenced by ideologies of European nationalism, in which a certain ethnicity or group of people identified deeply with a, with a particular piece of land and felt that their um, way of... Uh, of asserting their identity was very much connected to land. And that was a pretty radical notion, to be honest. Uh, it flew in the face of thousands of, uh, of years of Jewish history in which uh, the notion of returning to the land and creating a, a Jewish sovereign state uh, would only happen when the, when the Messiah came. In other words, it was, it was a spiritualized idea, uh, but, but actually rooting it in... Uh, practical political nationalism was was very much an overturning of centuries of Jewish thought on this issue. And um, for Zionists, the land that they are would be talking about is um, Palestine, Palestine, or at least part of Palestine. Right, right. Historic Palestine, and the the issue of borders is. Uh, <laughs> is a complex one. Um, even if you look in, in the Bible, you know, the borders of what's considered the, quote unquote, the land of Israel is all over, literally all over the map. 
And um, that was also the case and continues to be the case. Really, there are no established internationally recognized borders of the state of Israel, which is something maybe we can talk about later. But um, at any rate, the movement was founded by a man named Mordecai, uh, by Theodore Herzl, who was a, uh, a journalist, a Viennese assimilated Jewish journalist who um, really galvanized the, the notion of finding international support for a sovereign Jewish nation state in historic Palestine. And that, that alongside that, there were movements to colonize Palestine, um, actually largely coming from Eastern Europe, um, that Jews were um, moving to Palestine to create Jewish settlements, Jewish colonies, not necessarily um, those individuals thinking about uh, creating the, the basis for a sovereign state, but eventually that colonization became part of the larger Zionist movement with the very specific aims of creating facts on the ground, demographic facts on the ground to create a Jewish state. And a perhaps um, a significant number of those coming from um, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Poland and uh, would be would be one, um, but but others as well uh, were trying to get to a place where there would not be programs, which would be kind right. of word for um, for not for Christians coming and um, killing Jews. Right. The situation um, in Eastern Europe was very different than Western Europe, yeah. and you know Herzl represented the Western European. Uh, a desire to create a Jewish state that Jews could assimilate into just the way they were, you know, in, in, in Europe at the time. You know, it was a very kind of cosmopolitan idea. In Eastern Europe, uh, which was, uh, Jews did not have the same uh, level of assimilation uh, into the nations in which they lived. They were, <clears throat> they were largely going there to, um, in many, as you said, in many cases, to flee persecution. Um, and of course, when the Holocaust came about, that's what really, um, I think Zionism became what was previously uh, a relatively radical uh, m movement of modernity among many to really um, gaining a great deal of international acceptance. It, I think that prior to, the, to World War II, actually, that toward the very end of, of World War I, there was a very important diplomatic breakthrough, which is known as the Balfour Resolution, when uh, the Zionist movement was able to get from the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain a promise to uh, support a Jewish homeland uh, in Palestine. And then, of course, you know, World War II created a very different situation, and um, that led up to 1948 with the actual establishment of the State of and, Israel. Thank you, and I think that takes us, Stephanie, to 1948 and, and, um, and two versions of the same um, phenomenon. Mm. And by that, I think, I, I, I think what you mean, Steve, is that for many Jewish Americans and for many Americans, period, were, were sort of raised or live with an understanding of the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 as like the answer to the question of anti-Semitism in the world. Um, and uh, the, you know, a, a, a happy occasion for, for Jews to find, <laughs> find refuge. Um, but what we also understand to be true, um, what we understand to actually be true is that the Zionism that took hold and stands today is 
it is an settler colonial movement that established actually an apartheid state where Jews have more rights than others. And so in 1948, um, while many were saying, oh, the state of Israel is established, let's celebrate. This is what actually Palestinians refer to as the Nakba or catastrophe, where uh, 750,000 Palestinians were displaced and dispossessed, where 400 Palestinian villages were depopulated or destroyed, um, and really where the creation happened of not only the state of Israel, but the blueprint um, within that state for ongoing ethnic cleansing and apartheid. So the Nakba not being that singular act in 1948, but in fact, a plan. And when I say sort of a blueprint or a plan, that's really not a metaphor. It, it, it is in fact um, very well documented. Like in, you can read from, the, from those leaders who founded the state, from the, the heads of those Zionist militias who were depopulating those villages, all the way to Israeli politicians and um, uh, policymakers today, um, the very, very clear um, goal from, of the Israeli government to steal the maximum amount of land with the smallest number of Palestinians, um, which is what state building is in Israel, right? And so the, 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 I think, you know, this past spring when the world watched in horror as Palestinians were forcibly displaced in, in Sheikh Jarrah, right? This, this battle that people are starting to understand of Palestinian dispossession. Um, you know, it's important to understand that context within Israel's master plans for Jerusalem, which are explicitly focused on accomplishing what's called the Judaization of the city, moving Palestinians out and moving Jews in where they were and, and, and getting Palestinians out, right? And so urban planning from the very founding of the state in, in a settler colonial apartheid regime has always meant driving out and dispossessing and disenfranchising and expropriating those land and that home, those homes. And, um, and so we see that the way that um, the, that founding created sort of like a plan that continues unfolding to this day and is implemented through, you know, a very holistic system of state violence, whether administrative or judicial or psychological or military. Um, and so um, that is what Zionism has meant um, in, in practice. Um, and uh, while um, Israel and I think Jews in many places um, s celebrate the, um, uh, the time that that Israel became a country. Palestine has a has a different word for it than the Nakba that uh, translates as catastrophe. That's right. Yeah, I think part the central moral and political problem with Zionism is that this Jewish rebirth, so to speak, Renaissance was created on the backs of another people. Right, and people that posed a problem from the very beginning. If you if you want to create a Jewish nation state, a nation that's predicated on the identity of one individual group of people, and there are other peoples who are already in that land, those other peoples already become a problem to be dealt with it, because you need a demographic majority uh, to be able to create the so-called Jewish state. And so the problem is dealt with, as Stephanie said, through various forms of demographic engineering whether it's uh, 
literally expelling them from the land, whether it's uh, you know, revoking residency rights, demolishing homes. That's what occurred in 19, up to 1948, and it's what's occurring even today. The Nakba is an ongoing process and phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. I, well, we've, we've covered a tremendous amount that and each part of that could have taken an hour um and uh and uh, but you both did uh, have been doing a great job of describing complicated issues um so i i'd like to to move into uh what are what are some of the most significant advocacy programs that Jewish Voice for Peace is doing now? Great. Um, so, you know, we were, we were just talking about, um, you know, these many ways in which the, the in, injustice in Palestine, Israel continues and is sort of implemented, right? And so I think our work as organizers is to figure out what upholds that status quo and what are the points of pressure to like really bring it down, you know, and like create a system of, of justice in its place. And so we, um, we love to run campaigns. I think um, we have a few right now that I think are pretty exciting. Um, one of them is called No Tech for Apartheid. It's a campaign that was just launched last month um, and is actually being run by and was initiated by workers inside of Amazon and Google who are fighting a $1.2 billion contract that was signed by their companies um, as Israel was bombarding Gaza in May um, this past spring, those two companies signed a contract with the Israeli government to build a cloud infrastructure for the state of Israel, um, for the Israeli government, um, including for the Israeli land trust and the Israeli um, army, um, the Israeli defense forces. And, um, and workers found out about this contract and were aghast that their labor could be used to help uphold and implement apartheid. Um, and so have uh, launched a campaign internally to push their own companies to end that contract. And we and our partners um, have, you know, launched an, out, an outside game to make sure that we bring pressure to bear on those companies um, from the outside and that we support those workers in their, in their fight. Um, so that feels really exciting to me. Within the first week of their launching an internal employee letter um, to, to end the contract, they got a thousand signatures between yeah. the two companies. That's really, really impressive. Um, your, your use, is your use of the word apartheid, does that um, do, uh, does Israel, do Israelis, do American Jews um, overall um, think that's an appropriate way I to think- describe Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there is very, very clear growing understanding in the international community, in the U.S., and even in Jewish American spaces that what's happening in Israel is apartheid, um, right? So Palestinians have been saying it for decades. 
um, and um, Palestinian human rights organizations have well documented. And in the last year, we um, we saw you know Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem come out with a report um, documenting why they use that term, and also Human Rights Watch, which is um, coming out with a very very clear and documented you know many hundred pages explaining why the legal definition of apartheid is met. Um, God, but um, I would imagine that a vast um, number of people in Israel and Jews in the U.S. Um, would take umbrage at the use of that word. Yes, no, I think that's true because I think people are still, there are many in the Jewish community who are still holding on to this, this illusion uh, that this is somehow a Jewish and democratic state. And, you know, I think these reports that Stephanie referred to, the B'Tselem report and the, the Human Rights Watch report, only validate what many have been saying for years, particularly the Palestinian people, that there's two sets of laws for Jews and uh, for Palestinians, or one one set of law for each. Uh, and that, you know, notably, as B'Tselem said, bet- be- between the river and the sea. In other words, we're not just talking about the West Bank, uh, for instance, where it's very clear that Palestinians who live in the West Bank are subject to military law and Jewish Israelis are subject to uh, to civil law. There are literally two different courts for different groups of people. But but Salem said unabashedly that in Israel proper, there are also two sets of laws um, that may be more difficult for people to see, but the very, very deeply rooted structural discrimination uh, between uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel. Uh, so to be able to, to come right out and say unabashedly that this is apartheid, this is a legal definition of apartheid that is being applied between the river and the sea is, is really, really important. And it's really important that this is an Israeli human rights organization that is putting that out there. Um, and uh, you've just, um, in what you just said, I think there was something important that for people to understand that there are... Um, Palestinians um, in the uh, space that Israel has, and then there are a larger number of Palestinians who are living on the West Bank um, or in Gaza, um, and and obviously many others who are in the diaspora. Um, But but there are um, but there are Palestinians who have um, some semblance of citizenship in the state of Israel. Yes, I think some semblances are the key words there, you know, and this goes back to what I was saying before that it's, it's impossible to predicate the identity of a state on one particular group of people without otherizing people who aren't in that group. And that's been the case with Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, for for decades, uh, in fact, Palest- you know, Palestinians who lived in Israel, many of them were internally displaced refugees, um, were subject to military law for the first you know decade and a half of his uh, in 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 after the birth of the state of Israel, uh, and people don't understand that or understand this history or understand just how deeply rooted the discrimination is uh, that creates a completely different system. Uh, for um, for 
Palestinian citizens than for Jewish citizens. And I think maybe there's a growing understanding of this because I think there's a growing understanding of systemic race and structural racism in this country. I think, you know, uh, notwithstanding the, the blowback against critical race theory that we're seeing, uh, I think the blowback is only a sign that it's becoming, there's a greater awareness of it. I think it's based on that fear. Um, I think that's it's, there's a similar kind of visceral blowback that's going going on now against the use of the word apartheid because I think I think we're starting to see that there's traction, very real traction, that's being gained on this issue. Thank you. Um, for either of you to start, I'd like to talk about um, um, what boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, means. And but before. Uh, we go into that. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents. I'm Steve Wessel, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Stephanie Fox, the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace, and Brant Rosen, who is a rabbi at a synagogue in Chicago, who also advocates for the rights of Palestinians and is a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. We are discussing their concerns about the policies and practice of the state of Israel relating to Palestine and also the policies of the U.S. government. So uh, one of you can perhaps start talking about um, uh, what uh, boycott divestment and sanctions are often just abbreviated uh, uh, by the first initials. So the boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, movement for Palestinian rights and freedom um, was initiated in 2005 as a call from hundreds of groups in Pal of Palestinian civil society um, calling on the international community um, to boycott, divest, and sanction um, until uh, Palestinian rights as laid out in international law um, for freedom, for equality, for um, for basic basic refugee rights as laid out in international law, all be honored um, the way that they should be everywhere. Um, and and that call was initiated because what we've seen in history systematically is not only um, Israel Israeli injustice against Palestinians, but also utter impunity in, in the opportunity to do so. And that being granted by the international community and being granted especially by the US government, right? Just like um, any endeavor to try to seek accountability um, for those actions or to reverse, um, to reverse that injustice has been met with utter stonewalling by, these, uh, by the US government um, in every administration <laughs> um, for, uh, from the founding of the state of Israel to today. And, and so the call on civil society actors and the call on us as just everyday people is to say, bring these tools, these time-honored tools of economic pressure that have been used in every social justice movement um, that we can kind of call to mind um, and use them to bring pressure, right? And to say that we as everyday people um, can, can, can launch campaigns and win them that actually, that actually use the power that we have together as, as uh, grassroots folks coming together to push for change. And so, you know, when I brought up the, the No Tech for Apartheid campaign, pushing Google and Amazon to um, stop fueling and funding and profiting from Israeli apartheid, uh, what I love about that came, campaign, one of the things, is that it reminds me of the effort in the 
um, in the, the, the fight against South African apartheid that was, that was launched by Polaroid workers. Um, when those workers found out that um, their labor was being used to actually, you know, the Polaroid technology was being used to um, print the ID cards that were actually the very method in which uh, South African apartheid was implemented. Um, then they, they, launched, they launched an effort both from inside the company and a boycott of Polaroid here in the US. And so the same thing is what we what we have, the, those are the tools we have for change. Um, at the same time that we push our government, we know it's going to take a minute. And so we answer that call from Palestinians to, to so, camp. So what, um, for either of you, what is actually being boycotted? Um, in, in what space? Um, and, um, and is it actually taking hold? Well, maybe I'll, I'll let Stephanie um, answer that question. I just wanted to add that um, there were three essential uh, goals or asks or demands, I should say, from the, uh, the BDS Civil Society call. Um, one is an end to the occupation of, of the West Bank and Gaza. One is the, the second is uh, full equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel. And the other, the third is uh, recognizing and honoring of the Palestinian right to return for refugees. Uh, and so that, when people, particularly those who demonize the BDS movement as somehow anti-Semitic or, you know, seeking the destruction of the state of Israel, it's really important to keep in mind that those three asks are rooted in international law and basic human rights. Um, so I'll, I'll let uh, Stephanie... Uh, well, let me just um, stick with one thing you said, and either of you can take to this. Um, I, 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 I can read from what you said, and also I me have come my own come information on on this that there is significant opposition come from both Israel and from um, from many of the, the major Jewish organizations in the US toward um, BDS I would say even more than that it's being criminalized it's more than opposition I mean there are people who are um, now facing r real legal repercussions for honoring uh, the Palestinian Civil Society call. Uh, and I, I would just say that, that this is an example yet again of um, how serious people are taking this movement. This is, this is backlash to something that I think the Israeli government um, knows has very real power. I mean, Israel and Israel advocacy organizations spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, combating BDS. Uh, there's a uh, a new Israeli ministry, government ministry, that's solely focused on fighting BDS. So they're, they're taking this very, very seriously because I think the kinds of uh, campaigns that Stephanie was describing historically, we know have the, power, have the power to work. The only other thing I would say is that what Stephanie said is really important. This is a, a call that was initiated by Palestinians. You know, and when we talk about the demonization of those who are involved in the movement, you know, it's really important to point out that these are people who are responding to that call. They're not initiating the movement themselves. Uh, so often you'll hear, well, of all of these, you know, horrible human rights abusers around the world, why is Israel being singled out? You know, this is a double standard. Uh, that completely uh, perverts the, the basic understanding of what this is. Um, the, the, choice, the, the choice is not, what about all these other horrible regimes? The choice is, Palestinians have put this call out to the world, uh, and are we going to honor that call or not? 
Um, if there are other oppressed peoples that are seeking international solidarity uh, uh, to stand with them, they would be eminently worth considering. But to, to, point this, to point out this double standard completely misunderstands the concept of solidarity, which is what BDS is all about. Well, it, uh, just the fact that there um, is a Jewish um, voice for peace um, and significant numbers of uh, people, not only in your organization, but um, elsewhere that Jews are um, supporting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we know that, um, you know, 25% of Jews under 40 support boycott, divestment and sanctions, and that number is growing all the time. Um, and yeah, you know, we see it in the ways that you're describing, Brant, like, it's such a, it's a tremendous gift that Palestinians are saying, we've identified, you know, when I say as organizers, we need to look for the opportunities to shift power and bring about the change we want to see in the world. Palestinians are saying, here it is. This is these simple ways that you, wherever you're sitting, can take action. You can, you can stand up to this injustice. And so, you know, when folks newly awaken to the reality of apartheid and are like, what do I do now? It's a very discreet and, and, and simple set of tools at our disposal to, that have been used all through history, right? To say, yes, I can answer this call. I can, I can find my, my voice in this act of solidarity to answer this call. Um, do either one of you want to uh, discuss a, um, a different um, uh, effort or um, strategy that JVP is focusing on. Sure, um, there's there's lots. Of, there's lots yeah, we could well, say. Could, we don't have enough time for all of them. But yeah, yeah, I know, right? I was I was going to say, um, you know, we also um, are are pushing. Like you've mentioned, Steve, um, this isn't a conversation about Israeli policy. Is also always a conversation about U.S. policy, actually. Um, and you know, we are. Um, and have been with our partners pushing um, for a, a shift in, in, in Congress for a very long time and really articulating the power of the grassroots movement up to those policymakers. Um, and we've seen some strides there. And one of the things we could talk about would be Betty McCollum's Palestinian um, Children and Families Act, uh, which is a a continuation of a, a No Way to Treat a Child campaign that was actually launched, by, well, I think, while you were at AFSC. Is that right, uh, Brant? Um, and is a, a tremendous campaign um, to really for it's really exciting because it's the it, the legislation is really landmark in being the first piece of legislation that actively um, pushes for Palestinian rights in the U.S. Congress. Um, and this Palestinian Children and Families Act would um, condition the U.S. funding, the three point eight billion dollars of U.S. funding that goes to the Israeli government every year, um, on the um, on the matters of is Israeli detention of Palestinian um, children, on continued annexation of Palestinian land in the West Bank, and, and on um, home demolitions that is that Israel um, does every day, and so um, the fact that there would be conditioning or restrictions on U.S. money is actually, while it should seem like a very basic thing that we should all that should already be in place, is actually pretty historic that. 30 members of Congress and hundreds of civil society groups are signed on. Yeah, well, that is um, impressive, but also a long way to go. Yes, um, both of those things, yeah. Um, uh, 
can um, can one of you talk about the the recent um, actions uh, in uh, the the West Bank and perhaps in Gaza that um, criminalizes uh, organizations that seemingly are just doing what um, what organizations do across the world, um, uh, trying to uh, look at human rights issues and um, allow them to be effective. So can you talk about what's what's happened in the past uh, several months? Sure, uh, I, and maybe Stephanie could add to this. I think you're referring to a, a relatively recent uh, Israeli government. Yes legislation that uh, designates uh, six Palestinian human rights organizations as terrorist organizations, and including uh, not only in the West Bank, but in Israel proper. So Adallah, for instance, which is a venerable organization that's been look, uh, fighting for uh, civil rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel, and Adamir and Al-Haq, and other um, very, very important Palestinian grassroots human rights organizations that have been advocating for just the basic basic rights of, of Palestinians, whether in the West, West Bank or uh, in 1948 Israel or, or uh, refugees, uh, are now designated as terrorists. So just off, the, the first thing to say about that is just the obvious thing, that y you know you have a, a, a deeply rotten system when human rights organizations are referred to as terrorists, just on the face of it. It's almost Orwellian. <laughs> you think of it. Um, but also, in the very real terms, uh, this is this has very, uh, the very real potential to create harm. It can it can decimate these organizations or even uh, even destroy them completely. Um, it has the uh, potential to criminalize people who work for them or who support them. Uh, so this is more than symbolic. And, and I think it was it was done very strategically. Uh, you know, because it, uh, I think the Israeli government knows this is more than symbolic, and this is, and they also know that they can do it. They can do it with impunity, and you know, they won't hear uh, a note of protest. Uh, I think the State Department issued a very tepid kind of wrist slap, and that was the last we heard from this country. You know, kind of no, 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 that's not nice. You know, that was essentially the uh, the pushback they got from their their largest financial and diplomatic benefactor in the world. So and this is very, very serious and really quite horrid. Um, Stephanie, your your thoughts about this? And um, is there a, any way to put pressure on Congress to, to act? Yeah, I just I agree with everything you said, Brian. It's, it's horrid and it's the, the consequences on the ground are really terrifying, both for, you know, the individual, the, these organizations and also what it means for, you know, the frontline defenders of human rights to be criminalized and, and you know, imprisoned and taken away. What, what that is, is, you know, those are the folks documenting, um, you know, Israeli arrests of children in the middle of the night and settler attacks on um, Palestinian farmers trying to 
harvest their olive groves and you know the and you know it's like the real it's when you remove that small bit of um even the the carved out by those human rights defenders to even to document and to tell the world what's going on um it's really the telltale sign of an authoritarian um, regime doing its business, you know? And so it's terrifying for the consequences on the ground. And I also think it's it's critical to understand it um, both in the context of impunity, as you discussed, Brant, and also in the context of those organizations being some of the ones that are, are most responsible for the international community and um, waking up and starting to think about real accountability for the Israeli government, right? So um, Defense of Children International Palestine is one of those organizations and is an organization um, deeply involved in that, the in getting um, Congress to take seriously this Palestinian Children and Families Act and this sort of no way to treat a child campaign I was talking about a few minutes ago. They're core partners in that campaign. And likewise, um, you know, these are the organizations that the UN is listening to, that the international community is paying attention to, that are documenting and reporting on apartheid and why it meets those definitions. And so, um, so I think it's also a response to starting to um, to see the 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 world waking up and saying this can't go on. Our governments have to act, right? And so the Israeli government's response to that is to try to criminalize those who are showing that to the world. Um, and 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 to your question, Steve, you know, we absolutely have to to draw a line here. You know, I think that there, the Israeli government does things like this on enough occasions that there can be a kind of numbing effect of this is another instance of authoritarian um, attacks on human rights defenders. But this is a very serious move that we have to take as such. And um, we have to keep pushing not only Congress, but the Biden administration. There's just absolutely no way that that tepid statement from Blinken can be um, the last thing that happens. And so, you know, there are um, you know, we're calling Congress every day. We're 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 pushing the the Biden administration and Blinken to to listen to us, and and we have to keep doing that. Um, and we know that we have to continue to build, for instance, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement um, because this will continue to happen. So, yeah. yeah. And in the meantime, there may be people doing really important work on the ground um, uh, who get arrested and could be sent to jail for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested for, for each of you to spend a couple of minutes talking about what's the most difficult part of your work and perhaps with an example. I mean, I think one of the hallmarks of being working on human rights issues, which I've been doing for a long time, is that you um, you fail a lot, you lose a lot. Now, I would also say um, human rights work is um, may take a long time, and even when you lose, uh, it's still still part of the it's still part of the struggle, but it uh, it can be really hard. So an example of what's really difficult, uh, whether it's within the Jewish community, it's in, internationally, anywhere. I'll, 
Maybe I could start. I mean, I, I think if you had asked me this question, you know, 10 years ago, when I was doing this work from inside the Jewish community, um, I, would, I would have said that it's, it's very, very difficult to do this work. And um, with, the, the, with the backlash that you get from within your own community, um, and the fear of losing your livelihood or of, uh, you know, losing your reputation and, you know, being, being demonized by your own community. Um, you know, today that's less of a concern for me. Um, you know, I, I'm doing the outside game rather than the inside game now, and I've found that it is possible to create a new kind of Jewish community that um, is rooted in the kinds of values that Stephanie and I have been talking about. And, you know, I kind of feel now, I, you know, I've started my own congregation. I'm, I, I can speak my truth. I can identify myself as a proud member of Jewish Voice for Peace, and they can't do anything to me, you know. So that's not an issue for me anymore. It's really, and I realize that those who continue to do the inside game, and there are many, um, it, is, it is really, really hard. Um, I, would I, say, mm-hmm. I was going to say, and I think um, behind what you've said was, it, it was really hard before. Oh, it was, um, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> it was I mean, enormously I, I, painful. I've yeah. been, I've been called a self-hating Jew by a Jewish person. And oh, uh, yeah, because yeah, of these, well, my guess is you've heard the same or worse. Yeah, but that stuff doesn't really bother me so much anymore. I, I think what's hardest for me, I think is what you kind of alluded to. And that is, when you do this work, fatigue can set in very, very quickly. Um, and it's, it's hard because you do often go from defeat to defeat, you know, and being able to think strategically and understand um, the long game and also understand that, you know, historically speaking, there are times where it just feels like this will never get better. And then one domino falls and there's a chain reaction and things change very quickly. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I was an undergraduate during the- Just in about 30 seconds, because we're starting to run closer. Yeah, I'll I'll turn over to Stephanie, but the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa was the perfect example of that, where it went overnight from being, how was this ever going to end to apartheid literally falling, so. Stephanie. Yeah, I I um I think you're starting to to talk about what for me is the 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 hardest contradiction in the work is that um and the one that is you know sort of most painful is is that there's this there's this di- um dichotomy where whereby you know we really see the movement in the US growing. We see you know, those dominoes starting to fall. We see like, a, you know, that incremental but but significant change in Congress. We see campaigns blossoming. We see the movement, you know, we see the polls reflecting the number of people and the number of Jews who are joining us. Um, and so there's this feeling on one hand of like momentum and, and, um, and gains and wins actually, I feel um, in the movement. And the truth, the truth also at the exact same moment, and in fact, the reason in many ways why that movement is growing is that conditions on the ground have never been worse. And that, you know, as we're discussing, six Palestinian human rights organizations being criminalized and potentially rounded up and um, in the middle of the night and, um, you know, Israel bombing Gaza and uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem being forcibly displaced and just understanding that conditions on the ground are... Um, 
are worse than they've ever been. And, and um, so then feeling that sense of um, deep urgency that, okay, sure, there's that momentum, but then it looks so small in comparison to the horrors on the ground and, and having to live in that dynamic all of the time, um, even as a Jewish activist in this work is deeply painful. So I think often about what that is for my you know, Palestinian comrades too. Thank you. 